Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... Learning all of those skills as a student really allows you to embrace your personal power and realize that you are in the driver's seat as the student of your academic journey. You have the ability and the power to ask for help, to get your resources aligned, to raise your hand when you need support. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. Today's episode is about supporting students to be successful during their online learning journey. Together with my guests, we unpack a new advising model developed to help students and adult learners complete their online learning program. I am thrilled to welcome back Julie Delich. Vice President of Retention at Wiley Education Services, which partners with academic institutions and organizations to improve our world through education. If you want to learn more about Julie's learning journey and professional career, you can listen to episode 64. Julie and I do a deep dive into the online learning advising model developed using these four principles. Proactive advising, appreciative advising, cognitive behavioral theory, and shame resilience theory that many of us are familiar with through the work of Brené Brown. Through a very engaging conversation, we unpack how advisors guide and support students to complete their online learning program using the five C's. Connect, create, challenge, collaborate, and commit. We also discuss how advisors and students partner together with one goal in mind, to ensure that students have the support, resources, confidence and resilience to overcome challenges during their learning journey. The advisors accomplish that by helping students develop critical thinking, set achievable goals, be accountable to others and keep their promises. By the end of our conversation, you will know when to use one of the most powerful grounding questions. What is your ideal outcome that seems to work very well with children, students, and lifelong adult learners? On a personal note, I'm grateful to Julie for helping me change my mind on how I perceive my empathy towards those who are trapped because of shame. It turns out I might be more effective than I thought I would be in helping others develop shame resilience and find their way forward. Tune in to learn from a person who combines her background in clinical mental health with engaging storytelling and a contagious laughter. It doesn't get better than that. Let's dive right in. Hello, Julie. Welcome back to Impact Learning. Thank you so much, Maria. It's nice to see you. I invited you to come back following the discussion we had actually last year 
because you have now developed and launched the online learning advising model. And I wanted to chat uh, and understand more how the, how the model works and helps students. Excellent. Do I remember correctly that this is also part of the research for your doctorate degree? That is correct. Why did you choose this as the topic of your doctorate research? Yeah, so as the Vice President of Retention for Wiley Education Services, it's my role to really be investigating how students are progressing towards their goals and to remove obstacles to support them. And I started noticing a trend where about 32, 33% of our learners were stopping their education pursuits and not telling us why. They were ghosting us, as, as the kids say. And it really piqued my attention, wondering, well, what would cause that? So that's what initially started the journey into looking to, are we using the right advising model to reach the most learners possible? And so as I started that exploration, it quickly became apparent in the research that there was a lack, a huge gap of advising models geared towards online learners, particularly their social and emotional needs. So that's what really inspired me to start thinking about this uh, as my dissertation topic and as a part of my work. Mm -hmm. Is this only applicable or specifically developed for online learning programs? It is designed for that population. But we have seen some interest at some of our partner schools in applying it to their campus-based students, and the principals appear to be holding up for the campus students as well, particularly since so many of them are in a remote setting right now. Mm -hmm. So, Julie, help me understand, what was the reason? Did they have any kind of advising model? Like, did they offer any kind of support? Or were they offering something maybe that was more applicable and suitable for on campus and now online is a different territory? What was exactly the need or the problem that you were trying to solve? Yeah, it's a great question. So the students that I was initially looking at, that 32, 33% that I referenced, those students were receiving a proactive advising approach. So they were getting regular contact from an advisor in a prescribed outreach strategy and attempting to get ahead of challenges that the student faced. So there was an at-risk model assessment looking at some key factors of what might indicate risk. And the advisors were reaching out based on those early indicators or early warning signs. So even with that, we still had 32, 33% of our students that were exiting, not telling us why they were leaving their program. So that to me was why it was such an intriguing problem. With all of this support, why are we still losing these students with no explanation? Talk to us a little bit about the methodology you used to develop the model and then how you brought it to life. Thank you. So confession time, my background is clinical mental health. I think I confessed that last time too. So <laughs> a lot of my worldview is centered around those kinds of theories and research practices. So proactive advising was what we were using consistently. I already mentioned that, but we felt obviously a need for more. So as I started digging in, appreciative advising was one of the key bodies of literature that just jumped off the page at me and at my team. It really has a positive psychology emphasis of instead of assessing the risk of a student, thinking about what their strengths are and how to help the student mobilize those strengths to be successful. 
Uh, but when I looked at the appreciative advising literature, all of the research and all of the methodology was really geared towards campus students. So that wasn't quite enough to add just that to our repertoire. So then I started digging into my own background and cognitive behavioral theory was something that I've always ascribed to and seen a lot of success with from a counseling perspective. So I pulled a few pieces from that around challenging thoughts, challenging thoughts that were not functional thoughts or not helpful thoughts. So that became a part of the methodology. And then the final piece and the piece that really rounded out the model for us was shame resilience theory coming a lot from Brene Brown's work and, and a lot of her students. And so that was the missing piece to the social emotional needs of the students and our theory behind why students ghosted us, that they were in a shame spiral, that they were in a place where they weren't comfortable discussing their failures or perceived failures. So that shame resilience piece really sort of rounded out the model. So the four influences were appreciative advising, proactive advising, cognitive behavioral theory, and shame resilience theory. Excellent. So we'll unpack each of them, and I have a lot of questions. Wonderful. Before that, so I'm going to be thinking a lot maybe as a student. Like, what, what would a student say? So if I'm a student and I join an online program, I'm informed that I have access to online learning advisory model. Okay, so what does it mean to me? What am I getting? Yeah, so we don't necessarily introduce the model directly to students. It's more just the way we do things is sort of how we framed it. So if you're coming from a student's vantage point, you wouldn't necessarily know you were receiving OLAM. Okay. So the way we have it structured is that it begins at the moment the student is registered for their first courses. So we want to intervene very early. And we have a structured welcome call as one of our planned connection points where we start introducing some of the concepts of OLAM. Again, not really calling it OLAM, just sort of doing it. And one of the concepts of OLAM is the five C's. So it's connect, create, challenge, collaborate, and commit. And we can dig into each of those if you'd like. But a big part of that welcome experience is the uh, connection piece. So building the rapport, creating that human connection. So as a student, you would hear a lot of questions from me asking about who you are, what your strengths are, and what your goals are for the future. And then that moves us into the create part of the five C's. I would collaborate with you as the advisor and you as the student to create your vision for your program. So what is your ideal outcome is one of our favorite questions underneath the, the create concept, right? What would you like to see happen in your academic journey? And then really building out that plan together of how I, as the advisor, am going to support you to reach that goal and help you persist. We then progress through different connection points that we have structured for our advisors to do, knowing when those danger zones happen for students. Can we pause for a second? Because yeah, I sure. want to speak a little bit more on who is the advisor who plays the role now that you are playing with me. Yes. So at Wiley Education Services, we provide retention support for our partners that have selected that service. So the advisor is part of my team at Wiley Education Services, supporting the students at our university partner. 
And why did you choose to do that through a selective team? Is it a part of their qualifications, training? Like for me, the, who is the person who is in the advisor role is, is critical. Yes, absolutely. So all of our advisors are at minimum bachelor's credentialed, although many of them are master's and even doctoral candidates or completers. So we have a well-educated team that we hire, and then we have a OLAM certification training program. So our advisors go through three modules where they learn about OLAM and some of the things we're talking about today. And it's a very practitioner-based program. So there's a lot of role play and practice with each other. And then in order to be certified in OLAM, they need to submit five artifacts demonstrating their capabilities and competence utilizing OLAM before we consider them certified. What is the duration that the student advisory connection and relationship last? So it's from the first point of your first registration. So you're coming in as a student and you've registered for your first courses all the way through till you complete. And do you usually keep it like with one advisor or do you see sometimes that it's better to also change to a new advisor? Yeah, it really depends. So in most cases, we do attempt to keep consistency. That seems to be the preferred for the majority of students. But sometimes it really is beneficial for a student to make a change depending on the circumstances. The other challenge we run into is our, our folks are so talented and we promote a lot from within. So sometimes we need to make those kinds of an adjustments just out of sort of a, a necessary change. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start now talking about each step. I love the connect, the first step. And one aspect that really resonated with me was uh, something that you've talked about, you've written about the follow-up questions. Yes. And the power the follow-up questions uh, have. And I will tell you, I did not realize that until I started uh, doing the interviewing, mm. which sometimes I talk with the guest first time. It's like the first time we meet, like it happened with us last year. The first time we actually met was during the interview. Right. And by asking the follow-up questions, I think is where I demonstrate that I listen. Yes. And now I'm even more, let's say, interested, more intrigued to learn from you. Yeah. And maybe I bounce back some understanding and I say, here, you say this, help me understand this. And I found like the follow-up questions being sometimes more effective than the, you know, the initial question. What a great point. Do the advisors apply it in like the same way? And how long does it take them to start building this connection with the students? Yeah, so it can happen very quickly. And that's really important because we don't often get a lot of opportunities to have that one-on-one connection with students. People are busy and they select online because they want the convenience and flexibility. So uh, in many cases, so it really is important to have a very quick connection. And you're spot on. It's so important to use those really basic listening skills that help us all in communication. The follow-up questions are a key. Like you said, it shows that you're really listening. Additionally, it also helps address communication errors. So for example, sometimes you'll hear someone, you know, it sounds like you're feeling really frustrated with this course. Am I hearing you correctly? No, actually, I'm not really frustrated with the course. I'm really frustrated with the professor, right? If I wouldn't have done that, I would have been, as your advisor, completely misled on the action plan and the next steps. So not only does it show that 
you're heard and that I'm listening, but it also creates that space for clarity. Mm-hmm. And uh, do, the, do the advisors connect to the students like via phone call or video call? What do they usually prefer? Yeah, so we try to go with the students' preferences there. A phone call is really helpful for that initial connectivity. Hearing the tone of voice is so beneficial because we usually are missing these nonverbal cues if we're not doing a video call, right? So having that phone interaction is really the ideal. Also recognizing that some of our learners don't want that. You know, some of our learners really want the asynchronous communication of text or email as their preference. And so we still utilize those same strategies in text and email that we would in verbal communication, like it sounds like you are feeling or thinking this, is that right? Am I hearing you correctly? And it can create that connection even in that asynchronous communication. It's, we prefer phone if, if the student's willing. Mm-hmm. And uh, after they establish the connection, then we move into create. Yeah, so create is all about vision of the future. Right. So what is your ideal outcome? I've mentioned is one of my favorite questions. I use that in my personal life all the time as well. I'm with my teenagers. <laughs> you know, what's your ideal outcome here? Um, because it really helps establish a shared understanding of where the person wants to go. And it deepens the connection. Right. Because, again, it shows that compassion and caring. But I actually really am invested in what your ideal outcome is. Or it helps me clarify for you if it's not possible to say, okay, well, we really need to reset your expectations because your ideal outcome isn't actually possible in this scenario. Here's what some options are. Um, So in the create phase, it's all about establishing that shared vision of the future and really digging deep into the why behind the vision. So create goes more beyond what do you want to have happen into why do you want it to happen? So many people go back to school because they want to make more money and a better career. That's a very surface level why. It's what you want to do with that additional income. That's the real answer, right? So creating that vision for the future beyond what your intended outcome is and why that matters to you so much as a student will help me then support you as the advisor when things get tough. There is an element that I did not see like the words, the exact words that you describe it, but I sense that there is an element of self-reflection, self-discovery. Yeah. Whether it's my strengths or some of the perspectives I have or some of the struggles or expectations, it can be different things. But I saw there is a, and I can imagine that the, throughout the, the experience, the students probably move from one level of self-awareness and self-discovery to another one. Yes, that's very common. We're starting to see some students come to us very self-reflective. They know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're very clear. And this conversation is succinct. Others, it's much more of a journey and something where we're kind of progressing together as they reflect on what their needs and wants are. So it really varies, which is what I love about the model. It doesn't force a student into a particular pigeonhole. It allows them to be who they are authentically and guide them and match their pace throughout the journey. Mm-hmm. If a student has a misperception about maybe their abilities or anything that plays into their narrative in, inside their head, at which stage does the advisor start to recognize that, identify and start to work with that? 
Yeah. So it can happen anywhere on the journey, but you're leading me beautifully into challenge. The next C, right? So when a student expresses some expectation that's not aligned with what's real and available, or if they express a thought that sounds somewhat dysfunctional or not helpful. So I'll give an example. I'm terrible at math, right? So maybe a and uh, frankly, I, I would have said that about myself several years ago. <laughs> so I'm terrible at math. I hate it. Those thoughts are not going to help me be st- help, uh, successful in my statistics class, right? So when an advisor hears that kind of a red flag, they move into the challenge phase. And so the challenge phase is all about not shaming the student, creating a space where it's safe to say whatever, and you know, connecting with, you know, I've had struggles with math too, or I've have struggled with other subjects too. I want to challenge you, student, to think a little bit about what you just said. You just said to me, I'm terrible at math. Let's really examine the evidence. Is that really completely true? Maybe it is, but is it really 100% true that you're terrible at math? Can you give me some examples? And so a student might say, well, I'm thinking of my own situation. Well, I'm not terrible at it. It's just hard for me right? I have to work harder. That's really more true, right? Okay. So as the advisor, okay, great. So it's more true that it's harder for you, that you have to work harder. That makes sense. The next question in the challenge phase, is it helpful for you to be thinking about how bad you are at math? Is that in any way going to help you on your journey? No. (laughs) And most of the time, if it's a dysfunctional thought, the answer is absolutely no, this is not helping me in any way. So then the advisor challenges So what is a truthful, accurate thought that's going to be more helpful to you? So as the student, I'd probably respond something like, well, I better prepare for this math class and make sure I've got time set aside for trying harder because it's going to take me more time than I usually have to invest. And then the advisor can say, awesome, and I'm here for you too. And then we would shift into collaborate, which I can pause and get to in a second if you want to follow up. So it is um, about reframing the narrative. Yes, 100%. But it's also, I hear a component of, okay, let's uh, really face the truth as it is based on facts. And maybe for the reasons you talked about, maybe you haven't uh, developed math skills. So, you, you know, you haven't learned all that before. So now you will need, as you said, you will need to devote more effort compared to someone probably who is really, really good at math. Exactly. It's fact-based and it's realistic. Yes, it's not just positive affirmations. It's not, I believe in you, let's go do it. It's what is the truth? And now how can we plan to handle that truth? How do now the advisors interact with the students to see that the things that we agreed when we, you know, we came to the truth and we agreed on some things that they are continuing to make progress on that. How, how does this happen? Great question. So that leads us into collaborate. So once we've uncovered the truth and the most helpful way of looking at it, the next step is for the student and the advisor to come together and say, okay, now that we've identified this, what are we going to do about it? Right. So at this point, it's important for the advisor to start asking strength-based questions. So at student, what are you naturally good at? What do people tell you you are gifted with? How, are, how have you overcome challenges in the past? Right. So if I'm going back to my math example, 
if someone asked me that as the student, I would say, well, I am a really hard worker. I persevere. I don't give up. Uh, and I'm also not afraid to ask for help. I am, I'm a person who's going to go to the professor and say, excuse me, I don't get it. Let's go through that again. And then the advisor would respond, excellent. So knowing that you are good at asking for help and knowing that you are a hard worker, let's create your plan. So what are you, how are you going to use those strengths in this math class that's coming up? So student eventually would probably get to the point of something like, well, I'm going to reach out to the professor on day one and say, I'm anxious. I have lots of questions. Do you have any recommendations right off the bat? Right. And I'm going to prepare, like I said, I'm going to, you know, give up watching my favorite Netflix special for the next seven weeks because I know I need to devote that time to math and not entertainment. And so that's collaborating with the student to create a specific plan. Um, and then I'll quickly slide into commit because it's so easy to close the loop. The last phase of the five C's is that both the advisor and the student commit to their next steps with clear follow-up. So in this example, we're continuing forward. Okay, so it sounds like you've got a great plan, student. You're going to, when you would normally watch American Gods on Netflix, you're going to instead do your math homework. And you're also going to talk to the professor. That's your commitment. Is that right, student? Yes, that's what I'm committed to doing. Okay, advisor, would it be helpful if I called you on the second day of class to see how that went with talking to your instructor? And would it be helpful if I touched base with you the day after you would have normally watched your TV show to see how your homework went? Student says yes or no. Advisor says, great, I commit to these next steps. And so there's a commitment on both parties for what's going to happen with clear time and date stamps so that there's accountability to making sure that those things do indeed happen. So there is commitment and accountability. There are specific goals, specific actions, not, not gigantic, but specific, you know, manageable things that can take actions. And there is promise, like I will call you, you will call me, but we will reconnect. So there is accountability and promise. Right. Okay. You know, when I think of that, like some of these skills are, are skills like setting goals, being accountable, keeping your promise, doing the work that it takes. Sometimes it's a little bit more, sometimes it's a little bit less. Yep. These things, the sooner we learn these things, there is no way that we can live our life and do our work without knowing how to do these basic things. Absolutely. And, and you can see how this applies to campus students too. So far, everything we've said, nothing would be, you know, excluding campus students. No, the only thing I see is the, the fact, I think, uh, Julie, you have spoken to that, you know, you will see them, you will see their facial expressions close, really close. You will be able to recognize some more attributes that you, you know where their mental state is. Right. Sometimes you can't pick this up on the phone, you know, through the voice, because I think the voice is powerful and gives us a lot of information. But, you know, face to face is different. It is. It is. Help me understand how frequent do students and advisors interact with each other? Is it once a month? Like just to get an idea. Yeah, that's such a good question. So we have five planned connection points that every student experiences. So I'll go through those in a moment. And then the example we just walked through, that final commitment included designing an individualized support plan. So that's another arm of OLAM. 
And about 10 to 15% of our students have individualized support plans, have a need for that additional contact that's helping them continue through their program. The rest of the students get the five planned connection points and are fine for the most part. So the amount of contact is extremely varied based on the individual needs of the student. And that's really important to make a model like this work. You have to have that flexibility. So briefly, the five planned connection points that we have are that welcome call experience that I already talked a little bit about. Then we have what we call a um, student engagement question that we send a text in terms two and in terms three. Then the next planned connection point is the midpoint. So once a student gets to term three and four, their likelihood of persisting just exponentially increases according to our data. So the next time we reach out is about halfway through when students are starting to sometimes burn out and get a little bit fatigued. And then finally, the fifth connection point is right around graduation time, because sometimes students stop out at that point. They're so close to the finish line, but they're exhausted and they give in to that exhaustion. So the welcome call, the two student engagement questions in terms two and three, uh, the midpoint connection, and then the graduation call. The student engagement questions come specifically from a, a research study that we looked at that a simple text message or email message that asks a student about their current course and engages them is a wonderful way to not only connect, but uncover potential challenges. So I'll give you an example of a student engagement question. It could be something like, what was your favorite thing you learned this week in your course? Or another example we use would be, what was the most interesting thing that you learned from a peer in your discussion question this week? It's simple. It's straightforward. You, you can't get it wrong, right? Uh, but sometimes we get answers back like nothing. Okay, that student's in trouble. <laughs> we need to immediately reach out and create a support plan to find out what's going on. Um, other times we get a book written back like, oh, I... I learned this most fascinating thing from my fellow student. They're, they're probably okay. What you talked about now that maybe 10 or 15% of the students need the specialized, the additional support. That was a big question for me because I thought to myself, like, does every student need the same level of support? So who are the students? And I'm thinking more of maybe the challenges or the struggles they have. Who are the students that require the additional support, the additional plan? Yeah, that's such a good question. So we have a uh, list of what we call support factors that are kind of the headings of what the types of needs are that we see. And they range from anything from a non-responsive student. It's just a student that's just not logging in. They're not engaged. So there's a specific support plan you're going to need to put together to get that student on the phone and find out what's going on or engage that student to find out what's going on. Other kinds of support factors would be high stress and anxiety levels, right? That would be a support factor. Medical and physical challenges would be another support factor that we would see. Employment stress, whether that means unemployment, changing jobs, there can be a wide variety of things that fall under that heading. Uh, difficulty in a particular course would be a support factor. So that would go to my math challenges, right? As an example, it would fall under that difficulty in a course category or difficulty in a subject. So we have all of these support factors 
listed so that we can track. Are there any support factors that are more common in certain programs than others? Are there any support factors that are more common at certain universities than others? And we're really early in this data collection, so I don't have any of that to share yet. But we're excited to see those trends start to emerge because that might lead us to larger themes. So let's say, for example, we see that there's a theme of a particular program where every time students get to this particular course, we see this burst in struggling in a course support factors. We want to let the school know that, hey, every time we get to STAT 230, we see a boost in students freaking out about this content. So maybe it's worth digging into a little bit more. How is the course designed? How is it presented? What term is it offered? Just start to dig into some of the really tactical things around that course, because now we have this data to show that it's, it's a high-risk time. Where do you draw the line? The things that the advising model can help students with versus some cases that there are bigger mental challenges, mental issues that students, you know, sometimes have to deal with? Where do you draw the line on, we can help this student, but this one, we need to do something else? Yes. So that is such an important question because our advisors are not counselors. They are not trained to provide mental health services. They are trained in crisis handling. So they know if a crisis situation happens, how to refer the student to get that kind of help. But they are not trained to actually provide that kind of counseling. So one of the things that we've talked to our advisors about is it's really about where your goal is focused. If your goal is to help the student complete their goals academically, then you're on track. So if you're providing support that will help the student complete their academic goals, you are advising. If you start getting into a space where the goal is shifting to helping the student succeed in their life and their mental well-being, you've crossed the line. So you really need to stay focused on, is this going to help the student reach their academic goals? And so we have a lot of students right now with the pandemic uh, that are really stressed, right? And so they're talking about feeling anxious or feeling depressed and disconnected. And so we have some referral resources that we can provide to those students, referring them to the Campus Counseling Center, referring them to some articles about anxiety during COVID or depression during COVID. So we've got resources that we can provide the student to then take further action if the student's so inclined. But that's the line, providing resources, not actually doing the healing with the student. Mm -hmm. Now that reminded me of one aspect that I like a lot. I think this happens during the create phase, which is about helping the student see which things are, let's say, under their control versus the things that they have zero control over. And I think the pandemic has brought you know, to all of us a lot of aspects that we have zero control. Yes. And I think that speaks to confidence. Like, So we can stay calm and appear more confident that I can navigate, let's say, every day. But it doesn't mean that I believe I can control a hundred things. Probably I can control two. 
right? <laughs> yes. People say sometimes you are so calm and you th- you seem like you have things under control. I said, I do have things under control. Today I'm doing one interview and I'm doing one writing piece. These are the two things. That's it. That's and, it. <laughs> and the other 100 things or 20 that may affect me, I have zero control, but I am acknowledging that. Yes. And I love that part of helping because that's not easy to do. No, it's not. Yeah. So how does the advisor help the student put their attention on what they can control and then how to address it versus everything else? Yeah, that's where my favorite question keeps coming back. What is your ideal outcome? That question always grounds us. We call that one of our grounding questions, right? That question brings you back to what is it you actually want here? And if you, if you want something that's not realistic, then we jump to challenge, right? So the five C's aren't linear. The five C's don't always happen in that order that we discussed. They, they can happen in a really circuitous way. It really just depends on the natural conversation with the student. So it's not a, a prescribed thing. So for example, if you have someone, you have a student who's talking about I have to, you know, get the kids to basketball practice and then I have to, you know, and they, you can hear them getting overwhelmed, right? They're amping up. I see a lot of myself in this example. So you hear the student doing that and you go, okay, what is your ideal outcome right now? Oh, well, right now I was actually calling you because I need to talk to you about what course I'm taking next. So my ideal outcome is actually to do that. Great. Is it okay if we move into that conversation? And it, it just grounds you, it grounds the student, and it allows you to focus on. And then again, like I said, if they give you something unrealistic, like, what's your ideal outcome? I just want to be able to handle all of this and COVID to just go away. I feel you. <laughs> yes, I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. What, what do you want to focus on that I can help you with? Yeah, focus and grounding are very important. And it's interesting how... Another person can help us. Yes. We can help each other rather than, you know, uh, performing this role. As you said, you are, you know, you find yourself in this kind of discussions with, you know, in your own mind. I do the same thing. Of course. And then sometimes I have to ask this question out loud so I can hear it. Yep. What is exactly now that we can do? And I speak like that because there are two of us, you know, me and my brain. Right. (laughs) It's almost like there is another person speaking to me. like Like the role that the advisor would do. Yeah, it's almost your internal advisor. Yeah, I I do the same thing. What is the most challenging step for the advisor? Based on conversations I've had with the advising team, challenge is the most challenging step in the process because it's new. It's a new skill for a lot of our advisors to ask those questions about the accuracy and to ask about the helpfulness. And it can feel awkward. There's a lot of times advisors worry that they are being too hard on the student, right, by asking those kinds of questions. And they don't want to challenge the student because they don't want to infer that the student is not thinking accurately or in a helpful manner, which obviously you are inferring that if you're asking the question. So that can feel really awkward for advisors until they realize how incredible incredibly beneficial it is and how incredibly easy it is to just directly ask, you know, let's examine the facts and is this helping you? 
Mm-hmm. And those couple simple questions, while they might feel awkward and be uncomfortable, after doing it a few times and seeing the power of it to help the student, it becomes easier. It just takes that that initial kind of courage to ask an uncomfortable question that you're not used to. Okay, so let's talk about the skills that the advisors need to to be trained on, but also develop along the way. So you talked about courage. Yes. What other skills do you see the advisors like use a lot, like they need uh, to, to be able to perform the role and be effective as advisors? That's such a great question. So a lot of the competencies that our advisors come to the table with are empathy and um, that compassion, right? So uh, as we did the OLAM certification training, they're already amazing at those skills. That's part of what drew them to being an advisor is this desire to help others and this empathy for what other people are going through. So that's a core competency that many of our advisors bring to the table before we even start. And so for most of them, it's really just sort of an acknowledgement that that's a part of the role, that they have permission to do that as an advisor and really highlighting those those skills that they already possess. The um, emotional courage is a competency that is really important, not only for challenge, like we just talked about, but also for speaking shame. It takes a lot of vulnerability and emotional courage to talk about a topic that most of us would rather keep in the dark. Shame is not a fun conversation. For an advisor to learn the skills around being able to say, I had a situation in my life where I failed a class. And I was really embarrassed and ashamed and really felt like a failure. I don't know if you're experiencing that student, but I definitely had that experience. And I just wanted to share that with you in case you found it helpful to know that you're not alone. That's really vulnerable, right? So our advisors work on the skill of their own shame stories and thinking about when they felt that so that if it's appropriate to share with a student to create a safe space where you can speak shame, that becomes a possibility. It becomes real. So developing those shame resilience skills is a huge part of the process. Other skills, we've already talked about the importance of listening skills and those communication skills. A lot of our advisors do bring those to the table, but they're always worth refreshing, right? So all of us can always be better listeners and more effective communicators. So that's a big part of our training process as well. Mm-hmm. Julia, I want to take a little time to talk about shame and shame resilience. It's a little bit hard for me. I understand it. I have experienced it, but not at the extent that I have heard other people experience it. Like the fact that, uh, and maybe, you know what, maybe I will tell you the what comes after I feel shame, because I think we all have this. But in my case, maybe I have moved on, I have moved forward faster. The best way to describe it is that In other people, I see that then they go into isolation. Yes. Then they disconnect. Then they get, they get inside their head. I call that, you know, you are trapped. So to me, that's one thing I I, I will be very honest with you. I have empathy, but I haven't experienced it so much. So sometimes I struggle to, I understand it and I, I believe it. I know it's real. But I struggle to maybe develop the, the empathy like at the fullest extent because I haven't felt this emotion of like feeling helpless and being completely yeah. trapped. What causes that and what do we do to help them out of that? Yeah. So 
um, Brene Brown's work really talks a lot about shame thrives in darkness, right? So when someone feels shame and takes themselves into isolation and darkness and, and quiet, shame is just going to spiral and manifest. So one of the things we talk to our advisors about is the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is like, oh, you, I feel so bad for you sitting over there in your shame. Like that just must stink. I, I'm really, wow. Yeah, sorry you're going through that. That's terrible for you. That's sympathy. And it's not helpful, right? You probably just made the person feel more ashamed and wishing they would have never told you, right, about whatever was going on. So empathy is getting down in the darkness with the person and saying, I'm here to help you. I am here with you. And I'm going to sit with you till we figure this out together and removing that isolation. So if an advisor came to me and shared what you just shared and said, like, I've actually never been in that darkness, that means you are poised to help people out of it because you already have shame resilience. So you have what we need to teach other people. And so that hopefully would help you as an advisor not feel bad that you've never been in that dark place and really embrace that you already have some of the shame resilience skills that you can help teach your students. We've talked about a lot of different skills mm-hmm. that students gain through their experience and the advising a relationship because mm. you're not only helping them again to go from A to B to Z, they're also building through their experience skills. Right. For example, we talked about resilience. We talked about facing the truth, you know, fact-based thinking and decisions. We talked about goal setting and the power of that. What other skills do students develop? I think everything you just mentioned was such a nice summary that I would put the umbrella over those to say empowerment. That learning all of those skills as a student really allows you to embrace your personal power. And realize that you are in the driver's seat as the student of your academic journey. You have the ability and the power to ask for help, to get your resources aligned, to raise your hand when you need support. So it's really all about empowerment under with all of the skills that you mentioned. How do you monitor that things are working well? Yeah, that's a great question. So we measure pretty much everything that moves. That's a part of our our culture uh, at Wiley Education Services throughout, not just in retention. So we're looking at all kinds of metrics like how is each student doing term to term persistence? Are they continuing in their courses? Another thing we looked at, we look at is what we call actively enrolled retention. So if they have the ability to be enrolled in a course right now, are they? Right. So that's something that we look at. We look at the year over year persistence of the student and the student population as a whole. So if you were in classes last year, are you still in classes this year and or graduated? Right. So those are some of like the persistence metrics that we look at. We also look at GPA as a possible indicator of a need for support. And then we look at login behavior and activity behavior in the LMS as an indicator of a potential need for support. So we have we have set parameters around when we expect students to log in to particular programs. So for example, in most of our programs, if a student hasn't logged in in the last five days, they are missing material. So at most of our schools, that five-day mark is a threshold where if we haven't seen 
the student engaging in the course, we know they're in trouble and we're immediately initiating support. So we monitor kind of on the minute level, the grades and the logins and the activities, but then we do a macro investigation too to see the health of the student and the program. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of technology, Julie, that we didn't talk about yet. So what kind of technology do you uh, deploy and how do you use it? We have to work within the parameters of our partner institutions. So a lot of our technology is really simple access, accessing different SIS systems, different LMS systems. We do, we've experimented with some automation technology that can translate data from one system to our system. Um, So that's been really helpful. So we don't have to manually do all of that checking, but we have sort of those, the bots that are able to move the data across those connection points. Some of our partner schools use those automated early warning systems. And so if our partner school has that, we'll utilize that technology as well. Like Starfish is one example of a technology system. And then most of it is living in our proprietary software that is an instance of Salesforce that we've built up into our own database where we have a number of flags set up and automation set up to indicate to us when someone needs activity. Mm-hmm. And who owns this data? Is it like part of the institution or do you own it? How does it? Yeah. The, the institution owns their student data. Okay, very good. Yeah. So we talked about a lot of different aspects. Is there any perspective or aspect of the advising model that uh, you want to highlight? Maybe we did not talk about it. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm most excited to continue to learn about the model is its applicability to underserved populations. So we didn't really get into that. Um, and it's, it's sort of the next phase of the model is to see, is the model effective specifically with first-generation college students? Is it particularly effective with underserved populations, uh, with Pell Grant recipients. So that's what we're going to start investigating now and then making adjustments and changes as needed if it's not working for those groups. The other piece that we're exploring right now that I'm also really excited about is we're adapting the model to work for our clinical placement team. So we have a team of advisors that support students specifically during a clinical placement experience, either a preceptor relationship for nursing or uh, you know, a supervisor experience for clinical mental health or, or social work. Um, so we've adapted OLAM to fit that relationship. And now we're going to start measuring to see the impact there as well. Mm-hmm. One more question from me. How do advisors interact, communicate with the teachers, the educators? Mm, yeah, that varies a lot by partner. Um, some of our partners really want to have that deep connectivity with the advisor and others prefer that we kind of handle it and send them reports. Um, so it can run the gamut. But again, we're really meeting our partners where they are. We're seeing more and more that the partners want that connectivity with the advisor. So in those cases, it can be regularly scheduled meetings where they run through the students that would have support plans and give that kind of feedback. Or again, it could be a report that we send that says, you know, these are the students with these particular support factors. You know, 20% of your students have this factor, 20% have this factor, et cetera. So it varies, but we love when faculty and academic staff are interested in connecting with us uh, to benefit their students. That's one of our favorite things. 
I can see how this uh, very, I guess, detailed information from you on the factors, right? 20%, 15% are struggling with this or are facing this challenge. I can see how this can be really helpful for uh, educators, especially for online learning and teaching. Absolutely. And look at those themes. You know, if you see a theme that 80% of your students are experiencing this support factor, you might want to talk about it in a discussion question. You know, bring it up. Apparently, it's something your students are going to be interested in. So, yeah, so it can really be beneficial for that connectivity. Absolutely. And I can only think about, you know, when you do an online program, when you continue your um, lifelong education, in addition to everything else, you know, in life, it can become quite a bit of overwhelming. There are more things to jungle. So I I can see how there is more need for advising and support and guidance. And sometimes it's not easy to do it alone. Absolutely. We all need support right now more than ever. Thank you so much, Julie. It was wonderful talking with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me back. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidu. Till next time.